This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, the producer of this week's episode. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, an ordained pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church and executive director of Churches for Middle East Peace, a coalition of more than 30 national church communions and organizations working to encourage U.S. policies that actively promote just, lasting, and comprehensive resolutions to conflicts in the Middle East. Dr. Cannon is the author of several books and is editor of A Land Full of God, Christian Perspectives on the Holy Land. She has been frequently cited in articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. Dr. Cannon, welcome to Understanding Israel-Palestine. Thank you, Margo. I'm pleased to be here. You took a trip to the Middle East in March. You've been writing about your apprehensions about what's happening in Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories since your return. What did you see there that has raised the level of your concern? When you see it firsthand, the way that lives are affected by the current, what I would call the geopolitical situation, it's hard to put to words how challenging the situation is on the ground. And I have the great privilege of going several times a year. So I was there in the fall, even between November and March, with the recent changes in the Israeli government, which is the most conservative fundamentalist government Israel has ever seen. People watching the news probably know about the democratic protests that have been happening because of proposed judicial reforms within Israel, which really only affects citizens of Israel, most of whom are Jewish, 80% about, and then 20% are Palestinian citizens of Israel. And so you have these democratic protests that are saying the Israel we've known for decades as a democracy is under threat. And many who work with the Palestinian community and who are working against the occupation of the Palestinian people would say, wait a minute, Israel has really been a democracy primarily for the Jewish people, not for the whole community of people living there. And so they're saying that the movement is not about democracy, it's about democracy for Jews. You have the political situation being so escalated in Israel proper, which of course, has impact on the way that Israel controls the occupied Palestinian territories of East Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. And that's just on the political level. So I could talk about like what that looks like in Bedouin villages in the South Hebron Hills, where Palestinian communities are being increasingly displaced because of the expansion of Jewish settlements you know, in these Palestinian territories. I will say maybe just in summary, I had a meeting with some Palestinian Christian civil society leaders. And one of the things that they talked about is the utter despair within the Palestinian community. You have many, many, many Palestinians who've been working and committed to nonviolent active resistance for decades. And increasingly, they're feeling like nonviolence just has not been effective. And, and many of them are deeply committed. They're not going to pick up arms. But what they're telling us is if we're so desperate and we're committed to nonviolence, violence. What about the communities that feel like perhaps violence is the only alternative because this has been going on now for 50 plus years? Why hasn't nonviolence been working, do you think? I think there's several reasons. One is that the West Bank in particular is under Israeli military control. Villages that want to engage in nonviolent protests are not allowed to, according to the military law. So you have a village like Nebi Saleh, and they identify their resistance as nonviolence. I will be very honest, they do use throwing stones. They feel like that is a legitimate act. The community of Nebi Saleh, it's been written about in the New York Times. They 
would do protests with villagers where they would try to walk to a neighboring well that previously belonged to the village, but now is under the control of the neighboring Israeli settlement. Their marches are blocked by the Israeli military. And you can watch in videos where the military response is what's called a disproportionate response. And so tear gas and skunk water and bullets, which are identified as rubber bullets, but they're actually bullets that are metal bullets that are covered with rubber. These are the mechanisms that are used to quell those types of protests. When you read about things in the news, you'll hear about escalations. And so something in Nebi Saleh could be an escalation. Whereas when you watch the videos, you see men, women, children, grandmothers walking and they'll be chanting things or, or carrying a Palestinian flag. What we hear and the terms that we use versus what we witness when we actually see what's going on on the ground are, are often quite different. You wrote recently that the status quo, the agreement governing Jewish, Muslims, and Christians' access to the holy sites in Jerusalem has never been under greater threat than it is today by the recently elected Israeli government. You've said there is intentional erosion to the status quo. First, talk to us, if you would, about the status quo. I think many Americans don't understand what is meant by that term when it comes to the religious sites in Jerusalem. It has a very long history that goes back centuries, in fact. What is meant by that term, and how is the status quo being eroded? That's a great question. And we could write books in in response to it. And in some ways, the way different groups define the status quo might also be different. So there's not just a dictionary definition of what it means. The generic term, of course, means keeping things the way that they are, which can be good or can be bad. In the context of Jerusalem specifically, and in the way we're talking about now, actually refers to the agreement between the religious authorities and the governing authorities. And it goes back, as you mentioned, centuries to the time of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish regime's control of the Holy Land. The status quo had various different iterations when the government then transitioned during the British Mandate period. Jerusalem, of course, then was under Jordanian control after that, and now, of course, is a part of Israel. And so the status quo is the agreement between the religious authorities and the government. Many people also don't know that in Jerusalem, the status quo states that Christian and Muslim holy sites are under the authority of the Jordanians. And King Abdullah is the custodian, the King of Jordan, King Abdullah is the custodian of the holy sites, which is a part of the status quo. You have a body on the Haram al-Sharif or the Temple Mount that controls that, that's called the Waqf. And the waqf is under, on paper, the authority of King Abdullah, which honestly, in many ways, is who should have the authority, but that's not being honored. So the Israeli military controls, uh, and at times it's the military, and at times it's the police, you know, in terms of um, the different segments of the Israeli um, government and authority, but they decide who should be allowed on the Temple Mount at given times. And so one of the big concerns, of course, during Ramadan is that there will be numerous young men who would go to Haram al-Sharif or the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount to be able to worship. And often that's limited during times of high holy days because of concerns of large numbers of people. It's a security question. When we talk about the status quo eroding, you have have things that have been changing over the last several years about who has access to the Temple Mount. Historically, the chief rabbis of Israel have said Jews should not go to, to the top of the Temple Mount because of the, the fear of 
of inadvertently stepping in the most sacred space of the Holy of Holies. For the Jewish community, traditionally, the most holy site is the Western Wall, which is below the Temple Mount. And that's where Jews would have their most sacred worship and celebrations, according to their faith tradition. With the radicalization of the Israeli government, with increased fundamentalism, you now have a number of Jewish people who want to actually offer sacrifices or worship on the Temple Mount, which causes great, great tensions and is a violation of the historic status quo. The other example I would use is that historically, churches and Christian communities in Jerusalem have, just as Jewish and other religious sites, they've not had to pay taxes because the idea is they pay for the upkeep of these holy sites, which brings in millions of tourists every year and accompanying tourist dollars. And so it's a great economic opportunity for Israel that these holy sites are taken care of by these Christian communities. A few years ago, there was a struggle between the municipality of Jerusalem and the finance minister where churches were told that they owed taxes that they had never been required to pay for years. And it got so significant that churches in Jerusalem actually had their bank accounts frozen and they couldn't access their bank accounts because the Jerusalem municipality was saying they owed back taxes, which they've never been required to pay according to the status quo. That actually was resolved under Netanyahu during his prior term, where he intervened and said, wait a minute. And he formed a committee to address this issue of back taxes for churches. And that issue got so significant that the Christian leaders in Jerusalem closed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the most sacred site in Christendom, for three days because of these violations of the status quo. Ultimately, the churches can't afford the taxes and the maintenance of the facilities. That threatens the very sustainability of the church in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land. We're talking April 20th, the last day of Ramadan, which has overlapped with both Passover and Easter. This Ramadan saw Israeli police beating worshipers in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound two nights in a row. Israel imposed limits on how many Muslims could worship at the mosque. And that triggered rockets from Lebanon and Gaza. Israel also imposed limits on how many Christian Palestinians from Gaza were allowed to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, a site Christians regard as the place where Jesus was buried and resurrected. Why did the Israeli government impose these constraints? Were they justified? Local church leaders protested against this limitation, saying Christians had been worshiping at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for centuries, and these restrictions were heavy-handed and unwarranted. What's going on? Is this part Part of the erosion of the status quo or something a little different? It's both. I think it is definitely the erosion of the status quo. And I also do think that there are some differences than past years. On one hand, I think it's really important for listeners to know that these restrictions are not new. It has been general practice for years and years to limit worshippers' access. So Christians in the West Bank may want to go to worship during the Holy Fire service, which is practiced during Orthodox 
Orthodox Easter. And in order for Christians from the West Bank to be able to travel to Jerusalem, they need to have permits. Practice has often been that if you have a family, let's say of five, a mother and father and three children, that the mother and some of the children might be able to get permits, but that the entire family won't get permits to be able to go. I want to be careful not to ascribe intent. I don't know the intent. I can't speak to that. I'm not an expert on that. I can tell you what is publicly communicated about those decisions. It is asserted that those decisions are for security reasons. The reason a father and a teenage son might not be given a permit, but the rest of the family would, was because they are more of a security threat than women and children, for example. What practically happens, though, is that you have families many, if not most, who've had nothing to do with violent resistance, who are good, upstanding members of their society, is that you have families divided who then aren't able to worship and who aren't able to travel to Jerusalem, because often if the father can't go, family doesn't want to be separated on a high holy day. And the same, of course, is true for Muslim families as well, as you were talking about limited access for people from Gaza, etc. Maybe the best example that I can speak to is just this past week for the Holy Fire service when I was there a few weeks ago, there was a negotiated agreement that 10,000 worshipers would be allowed to enter into the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for this holy fire service. And this is a little bit different for holy days because there is a flame that comes out of the tomb representing the resurrection. And the flame is then passed to candles for worshipers throughout the church. And then there are worshipers throughout the streets in the old city of Jerusalem. And fire is being passed from person to person. There are safety concerns in that regard. Many, many people in a closed, confined space, etc. But when I was there a few years ago, worshiping for the Holy Saturday service, the reality of what I saw was separate lines for people of Arab descent and for Palestinians and separate lines for internationals and for Christians who don't look like they're from the Middle East you had a discriminatory practice where these numbers might be legitimate for safety concerns. But what ends up happening is Palestinian Christians are limited in their ability to be able to worship, where internationals are allowed access. Just this year, that number originally was 10,000. You had some escalations and that number was lowered to less than 2,000 for the Holy Fire Service. And that's some of what I think you were talking about, where the Greek Orthodox Patriarch Theophilus was very, very outspoken, saying this is an injustice and that this is a discriminatory act against Christians. And the response uh, by the authorities was, no, it's not. It's a legitimate safety concern. My position and the perspective of Churches for Middle East Peace would be that there are legitimate safety and security concerns, but let's not use that as an excuse and let's not disproportionately apply those concerns. Where when you have Israeli Flag Day or you have Jewish High Holy Days, those numbers and restrictions are not applied, which I think is a very different issue than a safety or security concern. If you're just joining us, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm speaking to the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace. She recently returned from a trip to the Middle East, and we're discussing her concern about rising Jewish nationalism in Israel, increasing attacks on churches and Christian clergy by Jewish radicals, and the erosion of long-standing norms that have regulated Jews, Christians, and Muslims' access to holy sites in Jerusalem. 
Vandalism of Christian properties and assaults on Christian clergy in Jerusalem are not new, but there are reports that this has greatly accelerated since the new Israeli government took office at the end of 2022. An article in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, March 26, headlined as, quote, anti-Christian hate crimes in Jerusalem soaring, end quote. Said church leaders are attributing the increase in violence to the tone of the new government and believe the Israeli police are not taking these incidents seriously enough. An Armenian priest said he's been spat on 90 times just since the beginning of the new year. A Christian scholar is cited as saying that if in the past people would spit without being seen, now they spit openly. It is no longer something that is done in secret. There have been many accounts of vandalism. And I think many people are unaware that the Christian presence in the Holy Land is under pressure and that that pressure has a lot to do with Jewish extremism and the passivity of the Israeli government. Could you talk about what's been going on with regards to attacks on Christian churches and clergy and efforts to deprive Christians of property in Jerusalem? Is the tepid response of the Israeli government to these displays of intolerance springing from inertia, an unwillingness to alienate a significant constituency, or is this a case of government complicity? Since the beginning of 2023, the rise of violent incidents against Christians and Christian property has increased dramatically. We're not talking about that a lot because the situation that's happening in other parts of the West Bank or in Israel are are getting the most news attention. And in some ways they should. So for example, there were terrible attacks earlier this year in February against the Armenian community in the old city of Jerusalem. But at the same time, there were incursions into Janine and there were numerous deaths of Palestinian civilians. Then there were some deaths of Israelis because of attacks in Jerusalem or attacks in Israel proper. We, as an organization that's deeply committed to the sustainability of the church, felt that it would be tone deaf to put out statements about the suffering of the Christian community when the violence had escalated so extremely. I think talking about this and talking about what a significant issue it is, is really critical. Christian communities have been present since the time of Jesus in Jerusalem. The Armenian quarter, for example, is one of the four quarters of the old city. In it, you have grave sites and historic holy places that go back to the time of Constantine's mother. So you have Christian presence, Christian people, identity, and sacred holy sites that have been there for hundreds, if not more than 2,000 years. And in that regard, those people and places are very much under threat. What you just described about the priest who said he'd been spat on dozens of times. I just was speaking to someone yesterday who said daily they are getting reports about Christians that have lived there and that are living in Jerusalem now being treated with contempt when they walk down the street, either being spat upon or being cussed at. Sometimes the attacks are even more violent than that. Uh, Just in March, you may be familiar with the attack on the Church of Gethsemane, a Greek Orthodox church where two Israeli radicals, Jewish nationalists, entered in during a worship service. They destroyed property. Firsthand reports say that they had pipes and that they used these pipes actually to hit people during the service. 
this was just one of the most recent attacks that was not the destruction of property. It actually involved the interruption of service and potential harm to all those who were gathered there. We talk all the time about Jerusalem being the sacred city for two peoples and three faith traditions, Jews and Palestinians, Christians, Jews, and Muslims. That right now is under threat in one of the worst ways that we've seen, certainly in modern history. In addition to that, you have laws in Israel proper that are a result of the conservatism and the fundamentalism of this current government. They're in conversation about threatening the ability for Christians to be able to talk about their faith. Laws against proselytization or the sharing of the story of Christ, which if we're a country that identifies as a democracy, we certainly in the United States would see free speech, um, not only as a religious right, but as a, a right of a democratic nation. After that incident at the Church of Gethsemane, the local churches in the Holy Land issued an appeal to the international community to defend them, to speak out against the attacks on them, to take action. It's my understanding that they have made similar appeals in the past and they've had little effect. Why is that? And do you have any hope that this appeal will have any more impact than previous ones? I'm afraid that, at least here in the United States, most American Christians don't even know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that live in the Holy Land. Most people here believe that the Holy Land is the land of Israel and the Jewish people, which is certainly true and has been historically true, but that's not the only side of the story. There have been Arabs present in Jerusalem since the time of Pentecost and the very founding of the Christian faith. This lack of awareness about the Christian community that are Palestinian Christians also extends to many American Christians, particularly evangelicals, of which I am one. I'm ordained as an evangelical covenant pastor. Many evangelicals don't believe that traditional churches, such as the Orthodox communions, etc., are even legitimately Christian. I think that's so unfortunate. And I think one of the reasons we're seeing a lack of response to the cry of the church coming out of the Holy Land is because those historic relationships between the Arab church, you know, the church in Israel proper, the church in the occupied Palestinian territories, that's not something that the majority of churches in the United States have known about or been in relationship with. Now, that's not universally true, of course. There are churches that have had missionary engagement that have been very present, that do have partners. Churches for Middle East Peace has more than 30 member communions, and many of our communions have been present in the Holy Land for centuries. I think that the groups that are a part of our membership are the ones that are the most loudspoken in response to the incidents that you've talked about. I'm curious about this uptick in religious intolerance on the part of Israelis, these attacks on Christian clergy. Is it simply because there are more fervently religious Jews in Israel these days? Is it tied into ethnic nationalism? Is there something that explains why there seems to be growing religious intolerance in Israel? there absolutely is a rise of ethnic-centric nationalism. And it looks similarly to some of the things that we saw in our country on January 6th, a few years ago. I was present at Flag Day last year in Israel, which is a very nationalistic holiday. And you would see young Jewish boys riding on their bicycles. And I'm talking young boys, 10, 11, 12 years old with Israeli flags, chanting things. 
the celebration of one's country is one thing. The celebration of one's national identity over other people groups is another. I was staying at St. George's Guest House just outside of the old city of Jerusalem and Flag Day became so violent that even outside of the walls of the old city, there was stone throwing and rocks and clashes because of this ethnic centric emphasis that we're seeing increase. And unfortunately, the current Israeli government is only bolstering that. A question about evangelical churches in this country. Some evangelical churches are ardent, unconditional supporters of Israel because of their end times theology, which posits that Israel must be reestablished for the second coming to arrive. Israel has assiduously courted the support of some of these evangelical churches. What do you say to evangelical leaders who believe that Israel must be supported in anything and everything it does, even when Israeli actions threaten the safety and security of Christians living in the Holy Land and the rights of Palestinians? I think the vast majority of evangelicals want to honor God and want to faithfully live out their beliefs and their faith tradition. I am an evangelical. I'm not trying to give us an excuse, but I think that there is this ignorance and this lack of awareness. I know many Christian Zionists who love Israel, who support Israel, who send money thinking that they're helping poor Jewish children, where the money actually is being used to build playgrounds and swimming pools in settlements that are built on Palestinian land. And I've traveled with with many of these people. When you show them an alternative perspective than what they might assume, I have found, forgive me for using the expression, but the scales have fallen from their eyes. Churches for Middle East Peace has existed for almost 40 years now. It advocates for human rights for Palestinians and for an end to the conflict. Members of the board of directors come from every Christian tradition, as you've just said, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, Evangelical. The organization explicitly says that it wants its members' experiences and perspectives to influence U.S. foreign policy. I had an interview with you arranged about a year ago. Something came up and I spoke to another staff member who acknowledged that the U.S. Congress has not been receptive to your organization's lobbying efforts. Why is that? Most of the members of Congress come from a Christian background. Why are they resistant to hearing what your organization has to say? I think the simple answer is the majority of members of Congress are less open to our perspective because if they adopted more holistic perspectives towards Israel and Palestine, they would not be reelected. I think we need to educate American constituents. Churches for Middle East Peace, our perspective is we fully support Christians who support the Israeli people and support the Jewish people and fight against anti-Semitism. I would assert it is in the best interest of Israel for their Palestinian neighbors to also have human rights, equality, and justice. What we're trying to advocate for is human rights and equality for all, not Palestinians over Jews, not Jews over Palestinians. I'm always curious how people get involved in the struggle for human rights in Israel-Palestine. What led you to Churches for Middle East Peace? Did you have a long experience with the conflict before you joined it? I did not. I was a local pastor in Northern California, was doing my PhD in what I thought would be U.S. domestic social reform, the role of Christians in changing the world, but on a local level uh, here in the United States. And I went on a spiritual pilgrimage to Israel. And I had my first book coming out on global social justice issues. And I saw signs that said free Palestine. And here I was a social justice advocate, and I didn't even know what Palestine was. I thought it was a map in the back of my Bible. That trip changed my life. 
Last question for you. Many churches advocate for a just and lasting resolution to the conflict in Israel-Palestine at the national level, but views held at the top often don't seem to trickle down to churches at the local level doing much, if anything, to support Palestinian rights or a more even-handed U.S. foreign policy. What could churches, what could individuals do to get their church members more involved in advocating for policies that are in line with Christian values, in line with human rights? Thank you for that question. Please, if you are listening to this, we would invite you as an individual to sign up for our newsletters. We curate news from the Middle East in Israel, Palestine, and throughout the Arab world. So we'd invite you to be informed. We'd invite you to engage um, on an advocacy level. We educate our constituents about things that are happening on Capitol Hill, on opportunities to be in conversation with our elected officials. And we also have resources for conversations within churches. Start a four to six week small group that can use one of our curriculums to talk about the theologies of the Holy Land and how our theology impacts the people who live there today. We have two different curriculums. One's a theological curriculum, and one is an introduction to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Invite Churches for Middle East Peace staff to come and speak at your church. We often bring Jewish and Palestinian leaders to the U.S. to speak at churches. Dr. Cannon, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you, Margo. That was the Reverend Dr. May Cannon, Executive Director of Churches for Middle East Peace. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. If you'd like to hear the full interview, you can go to our podcast or listen online on our program page on the KKFI website at kkfi.org. 